Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening. My name is Josh. This is Brighter Evening, and thanks for joining me tonight. I appreciate you listening. Tonight, we're going to be speaking about copyrights. And uh, this is a pretty detailed topic. Expect that we'll have several episodes on this, both the, the one now and and uh, kind of its follow-up. And I think we'll, we'll talk about this more in the future beyond that. Uh, and copyright is one of these things that is uh, in our world. It's something we commonly know about, commonly deal with, and people seem to know some rules here and there about it. Although I don't think there there are a lot of general there's a lot of general expertise out there. People understand the general concept, and I feel like it's something that is commonly accepted as as it is, and not really questioned or analyzed. So I'd like to go back in time to the Library of Alexandria. Uh, maybe not literally, but I'd like to bring your mind back there. The Library of Alexandria, of course, was in Alexandria, Egypt, and it was a collection of some of the greatest uh, works in history. Not a lot has survived about the Library of Alexandria, what, what it was, what it, what it held, and things like that. But legend has it that whenever a ship came into the port at Alexandria, government officials would get on the ship and they would search it. right? And they would, they would look for any books, and they would take the books, and they would copy them. And they'd take the original and keep it, and they'd return the copy to the to the ship. And so original copies of many great historical works were brought to the Library of Alexandria in one way or another. And there's a lot of interesting stories out there about, you know, someone looking to borrow it for a certain price and never returning it, or, or things like that. In several different incidents, uh, the Library of Alexandria was burned, and a tremendous amount of knowledge was lost. That's a tremendous amount of ancient history, but also a tremendous amount of scientific and mathematical knowledge that had been accumulated there. Now, we don't we don't have an easy time, I think, relating to that today, because books are so common. The ability to transmit and reproduce information is so easy. It's it's very accessible to anyone. I looked it up today. If you wanted to publish a uh, short paperback book, maybe 150 pages or so, you're looking at around $3 per book for even a small quantity, and the prices go down for large quantities of books. That wasn't the case historically, right? It's, it's only recently that that's been even possible. So this kind of loss of information in the the what what it's equivalent of to it's something that i try to come come up with a an equivalence today and i think copyright is sort of the greatest risk to the knowledge we're producing today in some sense now i want to say right away up front that i don't oppose the existence of copyright because uh, i don't i don't want that to come across but i do think that today's copyright isn't the right balance, and I think we could make some changes that would improve it. So we'll start with the idea of 
the public domain. In the time of the Library of Alexandria, anciently in general, all works were in the public domain, because if you made a copy, it was yours. And that was okay, because the act of copying itself was difficult. It was hard to go and take this book and make a copy of it, because you had to write down every letter in the book, and you probably would make some mistakes as you went. I know I sure would. In 1476, though, things changed. The printing press was bought, brought to England. At that point, it became significantly easier to make copies of books and other works. Now, we don't really think about how printing presses work now, let alone how they worked a few hundred years ago, but the movable type printing press was a big deal. Even a non-movable type printing press is a big deal. You take a plate, you engrave out the letters you want, and you can make hundreds or thousands of copies without a lot of additional work. The movable type printing press you you had these little letters that would slide into place and you'd go put them in and you'd have a, a little blank spot that you could put in for your spaces and you'd have a little thing for a period and for quotation marks and all your different letters. The printers used to arrange the uh, letters into two shelves or cases. They'd have an uppercase and a lowercase. And that's actually where the term upper and lowercase letters comes from is that that separation that they would do. Now, once you have your type set out, you can put ink on it, and you can go produce another copy. Stamp it on the pages, boom, 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 right? And you can you can make a thousand copies for a lot less uh, additional work than it would take to copy it by hand, right? If you made a thousand copies, it takes a long time to set a page, but once you've set a page, making new copies is a matter of applying ink, stamping paper. Um, modern printing presses are even more automated, right? We have, we all of us pretty much, right, have either them in our homes or access to them at work or at a library where you can go and send a document to a printer and it prints right out. And we don't even need that for most things anymore, right? We can have a digital copy of a document. We can have digital versions of books. Um, almost almost everyone in, in uh, major countries of the world has uh, some kind of smart device, whether it's a, a computer or a phone or something that's capable of, of at least some level of um, present document presentation. Um, I mean, certainly in the United States, I think it's uncommon to have a device that can't present documents. Um, and so there, there was this, this new technology and people started making stuff. And the king in England, started to get crazy about the idea of people publishing that things that were false, or worse, were critical to the crown. Right? This is a common impulse in places where there's sort of an authoritarian or absolutist regime. Um, they want to control the information. And of course, this king was no different. So, started to think about what would happen, right? Uh, how, how could they do it? And so, the Parliament passed the Licensing Press Act of 1662 that gave them authority to regulate printing. And this was regulation over the press itself. So as a new technology is changing society, they attempted to control the technology. And this is the era of time in English history at the Star Chamber, so not a particularly um, positive time. Uh, freedom-wise. Uh, and so 
this is this is sort of the the initial attempt at figuring this out, right? Control the technology. Don't try to control the work. Uh, but the political winds changed, um, and by licensing the operation of a press, allowing certain people, they gave a publisher a license, right? So this is like your book production company. Well, that didn't work um, for for the new political regime a, a number of years later. And so they refused to renew the the, um, the licensing of the Press Act of 1662. The licensing of the Press Act was not renewed. And as a result, there was no control over the production of information anymore. The publishers... There was a, a, a guild or association that was allowed to do this. They fought to to have this be a thing, but it didn't. Um, they, the, the parliament was not interested. And so that takes us to the Statute of Anne. That's statute, uh, as in law, of Anne. And that's the first public copyright law. So if you start tracing back the idea of intellectual property, as the term is typically used, I'd say this is probably one of the earliest places you could go look and find it. Um, the Statute of Anne, like I said, came about because the publishers wanted their previous monopoly, but Parliament wasn't interested. Right? This was 1710, and it was really just the successor. So they had planned on trying to get them to restore it. They couldn't do that, so they started talking about the artist. And this is a common theme in, in copyright. The companies that are making money in some way regardless of whether or not the artist is, talk about protecting the artist, protecting the producer of the content. In this case, it would be the authors. So, Parliament did agree with this idea, and they came up with an idea. They said, all right, we'll give the author a 14-year term for exclusive ownership of their work and a 14-year renewal. Right? This benefits the author. And... Um, indirectly it benefits the publisher right and that and that's kind of been the the mental framework since the statute of Anne. and this is a big change from the licensing of the press act because whereas with the licensing of the press act we were looking at a a law that controlled the technology this is now a law that controls the work not the technology and at the end of this 14 year period or 28 with a renewal, the work entered the public domain. And so this idea has spread across the whole world, right? Almost every country, I think, has some form of copyright law. Um, in the in the episode on, on ratchets and law, we talked about the Berne Convention and how it standardizes a lot of copyright stuff between countries. So we have to ask ourselves, why Why do we have copyright? The U.S. Constitution actually spells this out pretty well. It says, to promote the progress of science and the useful arts by securing, for a limited time, to authors and inventors the exclusive rights of their respective writings and discoveries. Right. So this actually gives us the basis in law in the United States for copyrights and patents, the writings and discoveries. 
right? The progress of science, that's your patents, and the useful arts, that's your copyrights, secured for a limited amount of time to the people who invented them now, or produced them. Now, we've added a lot of law on top of that, right? The United States is a common law country. A lot of the laws that we have uh, aren't necessarily codified in statute. They come from court cases going back to England and uh, decisions that have been made. There's judicial review on laws. And so between what the Constitution writes, laws that have passed in statute, and um, this case law, we have built up additional um, layers on top of this idea, right? The, the question is, what is a limited time? Well, that's up to Congress to decide. Um, and this, you know, this kind of goes into the, the sort of slicing between the, the idea of copyrights and patents and uh, trademarks. I'm not necessarily going to go all the way into that right now, but I will give just a kind of brief taste of the idea, which is that the purpose of uh, copyrights is to protect artists or authors, people who produce works. Patents are to protect inventors and give them a period of time to benefit from whatever invention they make. And the uh, concept of a trademark, which is usually lumped in as intellectual property as well, is to protect consumers more than the company. Really, the idea is that if you go and buy a can that says Coca-Cola on it, you should be able to know that that came from Coca-Cola. Um, the rules between the three are very different from one another. And, uh, you know, you, you've got to kind of analyze them separately. And so even the concept of intellectual property as a single thing, I think, is a bit deceptive because these are three different things, three different systems of law we've created as a society that have different benefits and make different trade-offs. Um, so that's the legal basis. At least in the United States, that's the legal basis. And I, I don't think that's an uncommon legal basis. Around the world, it's something along those lines, right? They, they set some rules. A lot of countries became party to the Berne Convention eventually, which kind of codifies certain things about how the copyrights are created, but that's really all there is to it. Um, there's another way to look at this. Now, I talked about the public domain a minute ago. Um, the public domain is the final destination for all copyrighted works. It's where the public good comes from. Um, and, and so this takes you into the idea of the social contract. So in, in law, they talk about the um, promotion of the useful arts. You can look at this as the social contract that exists between um, society and the person getting this copyright, the, the author, the artist. The social contract is this. By providing them with some time to make money exclusively from what they come up with, we incentivize them to do it, right? They can make a living producing their art potentially, right, if it's good, if people like it. If you're the Beatles, people want to hear your music. And so you produce it. You're there to get get rich and famous, right? That's that's what a lot of musicians are there for. And so they, they produce their music, they produce the movies, they produce uh, great stories, and that benefits society, that we, we get access to that. They get limited time where they get exclusive benefit from that. But eventually, the public domain becomes the final destination, right? The public good 
isn't just, well, this music was created, and so you have the option of paying to listen for it. The public good is, eventually, this work goes into the public domain. Not only are you allowed to buy it, you're allowed to listen to it for free. You're allowed to make copies. You're allowed to sell it. It's no longer exclusively something that belongs to the artist or the artist's record label or the artist's publishing house. It's now in the public domain. And that's important because the public domain is where you can take an existing work and transform it, remake it, retell it. You can Anyone can make a Robin Hood movie. Anyone can make a Robin Hood play. Anyone can write a Robin Hood story or a Robin Hood book because Robin Hood is in the public domain. No one owns the character of Robin Hood. And that's a big deal because this allows us to have cool Robin Hood stories, right? There's been a ton of Robin Hood movies and, you know, cartoons and things. When it comes to Star Wars, as of today, Disney is the sole owner of Star Wars. So it really is only Disney that can legitimately make Star Wars stories and Star Wars movies. Now, yes, fan fiction exists, and Disney's probably not going after fans writing stories that aren't aren't being sold or anything like that. But in reality, Disney could. Disney could force them to because as part of uh, copyright, they own not only the work, but derivative works. So if you write something in the Star Wars universe, then you're, you're subject to you know, potentially having a, a lawsuit because you're violating the copyright on a derivative work. So the next thing to understand about copyrights, now that you understand the social contract, right? because it's important to understand that social contract, right? This is an exchange that we're making as a society with creators. And that's the balance we're trying to strike. The next thing to understand is fair use. This is another way that we're trying to balance the public good against the author's interest. If you're an author, you want to have complete control and only show what you want to show and be the only one to sell it. But there are some times it just makes sense to let someone else do something with the work. Um, you know, this could be things like a, a reaction video, a review, uh, you know, analysis in a school where maybe the teacher gets up and they read a paragraph from a book and then they say, all right, why don't you write a paragraph on this or write an essay on this thing that I read you, right? That's technically a public performance. But it's not a public performance in the sense of I'm performing a whole play. And so the idea is fair use kind of gives you this option of playing playing with that a little bit, using this material in a way that doesn't deprive the author's interest too significantly, right? Or or in other words, the author's rights are som somewhat limited in this way so that the public good is maintained even during the period of copyright. So there's a four-factor test for this. And again, these are exceptions for things like criticism, parody, academic use. Um, the four-factor the four test is um, the purpose and character of the use, including whether or not the use is of a commercial nature, or is for a, a nonprofit educational purpose, right? So that's your kind of educational exemption. The nature of the copyrighted work itself, the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work, 
and the effect upon the potential market for or the value of the copyrighted work. Now you notice I'm speaking in very precise legal language here, and that's because I got this four-factor test from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Um, so let's talk about that. The purpose and character of the use. Um, so if you're doing it to make money, you're doing it to harm the author, that's kind of one purpose. If you're doing it as a means of criticism, as a means of teaching, that's sort of another use. So that's one factor that the, the court would look at to determine if it's fair use or not. The nature of the copyrighted work. Um, you know, this could be the, the type of content that it is. It could be whether or not it's uh, already serious. If it's political in nature versus uh, something that's just a pure fiction story, could have a pretty big impact. Because if it is something that's uh, political in nature, there may be a stronger public interest in allowing uh, more substantial quoting of, of some book or something. Because that allows the you know the sort of public discourse around this political topic to move forward. Um, the amount and substantiality of the work, like my spell checker doesn't even recognize the word substantiality, but you know what it means, I think. It's just the amount and the substance of it, how how impactful it is. So um, if it's a single picture and you take half the picture, that's possibly pretty, pretty much the whole work, right? If you take the center of something. Um, if it's a 500-page book and I take a, a sentence out of it, that's not substantial at all, um, especially if you put it in the context where I'm writing a reaction or a criticism of it. Uh, you know, taking a sentence or two out of a, a whole book is not a really big deal, right? Quoting some portions of it. Uh, so the amount, right, like a percentage, but it's not just a straight percentage. That's the substantiality part. Um, you know, the, 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 the book I've got in mind is O.J. Simpson's book, which was called if I did it, here's what happened. Um, you know, in in theory, if you're trying to look at what happened in that book and, and you really just copy the one or two pages where it talks about what quote-unquote would have happened uh, f during, the, during that crime, like, that's probably the most interesting part of the book. And if you're publishing just that, that's, even though it's, probably a pretty small fraction of the book, right? It's maybe two of 200 pages. It's only 1%. It might be very a very substantial part of the value of the book. And so they're going to be, you know, in the court reviewing that. And that's going to be possibly a red flag. And finally, I've been kind of touching on this as I've gone through each of those. That's the effect upon the potential market value of this work. So if I... If I'm a really good singer and I sing my own version of, um, of a famous song, people might want to listen to my version of the song rather than someone else's. So let's say I'm singing Eric Clapton's Layla, and people say, wow, you're a great singer. I don't think that would happen in real life, but let's just say it would. They say, oh, wow, you're a great singer. I'd love to hear your your version of the song, so I keep singing it. So people are going to buy my, my song, my record, of me singing Layla instead of Eric Clapton. If that happens... I'm diminishing the market value of his song. And so that's a, that's a really good example of like where you could kind of impact market value and you could see how that falls into the other tests, uh, other four pieces of the test. So if you think about if you're given a paragraph of a book as a writing prompt in 
school, you do the four-factor test on it. Well, it's a non-commercial, non-profit educational use. It's a fictional work. Um, you're only using a portion of it. Certainly not a substantial thing. And this is not a substitute for the the purchase of the book, for the use of the book. And so in that case, the teacher or professor is pretty much in the clear, right? Whereas you go to the kind of the other extreme where I uh, sneak into a movie theater with a video camera and I start selling copies of of the video, right? So the purpose is to uh, make money, right? It's my it's a commercial purpose. It'll you know it's a copyrighted work again, pure fiction. Um, so I'm not I'm not doing anything like exposing some secret that is in the public interest. Um, I'm taking the whole film. And again, people could use this videotape I'm selling as a substitute for seeing the movie. So there, there you go is the kind of polar opposite example in this four-factor test. All right, so we've talked about a number of things here. We've talked about um, sort of the history of copyright going back to the Library of Alexandria. And again, I'll tie more into that idea um, in, in sort of the second part of this. We've talked about right this this whole idea of the difficulty of copying and how difficult that was and what was lost when that library burned. The introduction of the printing press in England. The difficulty in managing that. Then we go to the Statute of Anne and the realization that the rights shouldn't be with the publisher; they should be with the author. That's in the public interest. And then we start talking about what copyright is. The social contract and and fair use and fair use is very tied to the social contract because we're balancing the author's interest against the public interest, right? We're doing that with the existence of copyright, with the term of copyright, and and these sort of exceptions or or um, uh, exceptions to rights in the copyright, and then. Looking forward, I think we see that more technological changes have come and there's been additional types of copyrights introduced. Right, so music started getting copyrighted eventually. And there's several parts to a musical copyright if you really think about it. There's, uh, let's just say it's a typical song, so you have the lyrics. There's a set of rules for those because those are more like a, a book in some sense. You have the music itself, which could be copyrighted separately, so you could get a license to a tune but not the lyrics. Uh, and then you also have individual recordings. So I could get licensed to sing a particular song and produce it, and I would have a copyright on my recording of that song. Movies and television needed special copyrights. They're formed and created differently, and they exist in a different uh, sort of system than music or books before them. Um, and they also had different challenges around reproduction. The internet came along, and it made reproducing all manner of copyrighted works much simpler. Now, it's not just the internet, right? It's computers in general that that make this possible, right? 
I make a digital copy of something, and I can make a perfect digital copy. It costs almost nothing. It takes almost no effort. If that was the case for the Library of Alexandria, we would have never lost those works. But we also have this situation where it's so easy. It can be easy to lose the balance between the author's rights and the the public good. Right? It's so easy to make a copy, we could just make copies and and skip past it. So it becomes a bit of a tricky issue. Um, we've got to be careful about how we balance these rights, especially in the modern era where we have really high quality internet connectivity, digital copies of things and very high fidelity. It, it's incredible. And it, it's, it's a balance that has to be struck. And the way we're striking it now is leading us down I believe, a, 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 not a great path, a, a direction we don't want to go. At least I don't think we do. But again, I don't think a lot of people think about it because copyright as it is and, and your consumption of copyrighted content is something around us. It's in the air. It's something we accept. So, so I want to talk about an example of this that's not tied to technology, not not especially at least. And that's the song, Happy Birthday. This song was written by two people. The tune was one note different from a song called Good Morning to You. It had the same lyrical structure, though the lyrics were different. Right? It was good morning to you, good morning to you, good morning dear children, good morning to you. And um, it was copyrighted. The copyright was owned by the Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers Company, Warner Music. And to me, this is a really, really strange thing. Because this song that's co encumbered by copyright, I think the copyright just expired, was, it's completely uh, saturated the culture, right? Every family I've ever met sings happy birthday on the birthday, assuming they're not a family that doesn't celebrate birthdays or something, right? People sing it at work. I've heard it sung overseas by people. It's the most, you know, most common song for birthdays. Except in restaurants and church meetings and stuff like that. In those places, you know, restaurants especially, they'll have a special birthday song, right? They'll, they'll come up and start clapping and telling you it's, hey, it's your birthday, Chili's loves you here, you know? Like, they, they come up with some weird song. And you wonder, why don't they just sing Happy Birthday? And the reason's really simple. They can't. They can't without paying a license fee, and it's a pretty high license fee. You almost never hear Happy Birthday in movies. You might start hearing it now that the copyright's expired. But you never heard of movies. Again, because of the licensing issue. You had to pay Warner Music. It was aggressively enforced. Uh, I think at one point, Warner Music was suing the Girl Scouts for singing songs around the campfire. Is that in the public good? I, I don't doubt that that song is great. In fact, I think it's, <laughs> it's clearly great. It's something that's part of our culture. But it was written over 100 years ago, and it really has permeated the culture. Is it in the public good? 
that up until two years ago, you had to pay licensing for this song? Or was the public interest maybe that that copyright should have expired a little bit earlier? Maybe a lot earlier. What is in the public interest when it comes to copyright? What's the duration? What's changed recently? We're going to get into that stuff in part two. Um, we're going to talk about these copyright terms. We're going to talk about uh, Napster and its effect on um, kind of the way copyrights are perceived and if some of the laws that have passed. We're going to talk about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. There's a lot of great stuff. Um, so I hope you're looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. I appreciate you listening tonight. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.